Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. I want to start off this morning by giving you ten reasons it's good to be a man. Number ten, you never need to ask for directions. Because you're never lost, so you say. Number nine, you can go to the bathroom without a support group. Number eight, if someone forgets to invite you to something, he can still be your friend. Number seven, you can drop by to see a friend without bringing a little gift. Number six, if another guy shows up at the same party in the same outfit, you might just become lifelong buddies. Number five, you can do your nails with a pocket knife. Number four, there's always a game on somewhere. Number three reason why it's good to be a man. Your pals can be trusted never to trap you with. So, notice anything different? (laughs) The number two reason it's good to be a man. If something mechanical doesn't work, you can bash it with a hammer and throw it across the room. And the number one reason why it's good to be a man, one wallet, one pair of shoes, one color, all seasons. Now, there are a lot of great things about being a dad, about being a man, but the greatest thing is you get to be a dad. That's the greatest thing of all. And one of the awesome things about being a dad is the impact you can have on your children's physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being. Let me show you some statistics that may surprise you. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 85% of all children that exhibit behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. Eighty percent of rapists motivated with displaced anger come from fatherless homes. Seventy-one percent of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. Seventy-five percent of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. Eighty-five percent of all youth sitting in prisons grew up in fatherless homes. Now, these statistics only confirm what our Heavenly Father, who knows best, said through Paul almost 2,000 years ago 
in the book of Ephesians on the importance of fathers in raising children. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4. Ephesians 6. Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, has laid down a solid theological foundation for our relationship in Christ. And now he begins to deal with the ethical implications. Now that you're saved, how should you live? And he's talking to the children and fathers, beginning in chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It is so crucial that fathers be involved in the raising of children that God packed these four verses with imperative verbs, which are commands in the Greek language. The verb obey, honor, do not provoke, bring them up. All of these verbs are in the original New Testament Greek commands. God says, I am commanding these things, men. Men, you have an awesome impact on your children. That is a fact. The only question is, what kind of impact are you going to have? Is it going to be a positive impact? Or will it be a negative impact? If you will follow God's Word that we see today... It will be a beneficial, godly impact on your children. There are three things that God is saying to us fathers today. First, fathers don't force feed your children. Nurture them. In verse 4, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. The command is not to exasperate your children, not to needlessly make them angry. Now, Paul does not specify exactly how these fathers that he's writing to were exasperating their children. But the cultural situation, I believe, can give us a clue. In the time of Paul writing this, Ephesus was in the Roman Empire. And in Rome at that time, The father presided over the family with absolute authority. Rome had a law called Patria Potestas, which meant the father's power. The father in the Roman family had the authority to sell his children, to destroy or kill his children if he wanted to, and nobody could say anything. His wife and his children and his slaves were considered his property that he could do with as he desired. If a child displeased a father, he could disown that child, he could sell that child into slavery, or he could even kill them. When a child was born, 
He was brought and placed at the feet of his father. If his father picked the child up, the child remained in the family. If the father turned and walked away, the child was either left to die or auctioned off into slavery. Seneca, who was a contemporary with Paul, describes the Roman policy with regards to unwanted animals. He said, we slaughter a fierce ox. We strangle a mad dog. We plunge a knife into a sick cow. Children born weak or deformed, we drown. And so Paul is writing to men who are in this atmosphere. And so I think it's safely to assume that these fathers were mainly exasperating their children by being overbearing and dictatorial. Men, you're not your child's football coach. You're not their drill sergeant. You are their father. Most fathers have the tendency to be overbearing with their children, especially their sons. Now, I have a confession to make. It may surprise you who know me that I could be overbearing. God was gracious to my sons when He put them at the end of the order. When He gave me four daughters first to soften me up. If I had had those boys first, I would have probably killed them. I mean, I was just that hard-nosed. You know, it was simple to me. I say it, you do it. That's that simple. No and, ifs, or buts about it. No discussion needed. That's just the way it is. I would have been akin to a mix between a drill sergeant and a football coach. But God graciously gave me daughters and softened my heart. So when they came around, I was tempered a great deal. You may be thinking, but you know, preacher, I've got to be a leader. Right? Right. But what's the difference between a leader and a dictator? A dictator is harsh and demanding. A leader is kind, yet firm. A dictator will not allow discussion. I've said it, that sells it, now do it. A leader will entertain discussion, though he may not change. He will at least allow discussion in most circumstances. Our children are people. They're not slaves. They're not employees. We should be firm, but not overbearing or dictatorial. To be so is to exasperate them. To make them see with anger. Now I'm going to add a few other things that I think exasperate children that fathers are guilty of today. A second thing is rules without a relationship. Dad is great at setting the rules, but he has no relationship with the kids. All he is is a rule maker. He comes home from work and he lays down the rules, but there's no relationship. The children do not know his heart. All they see is the rules and they see them as being oppressive. And when they become teenagers, they rebel. 
not against the rules, but against the relationship or lack of relationship to dear old dad. They start thinking, who is he to lay down the rules? He doesn't care about us. He's never at home. When he is, he's not paying any attention to us. And so teenagers seethe with anger, and that anger erupts in a rebellious relationship. The third thing that fathers do to exasperate their children is when fathers show favoritism. I know a family where the father's first child was a daughter. He was not comfortable relating to daughters. A couple of years later, he had a son. He and the son would pile around, often leave the daughter out. There was no question that his favorite was the son. When they were teenagers, he would come in on Saturday afternoon and the son and daughter would be sitting in the living room and he would say to the son, how would you like to go to the movies? Never invite his daughter to go. Now, how do you think that made the daughter feel? It exasperated. It hurt her. It caused seething, deep anger. Joseph and Jacob. He gave Joseph the beautiful coat. It was no question he was the favored son over the other brothers. And how did it make these other brothers feel? They wanted to kill Joseph. And plotted to kill him. And finally decided to opt for selling him into slavery. But it's because of that favoritism their dad was showing toward Joseph that they burned in anger. A fourth way we can exasperate our children. Outbursts of anger. Sharp, cutting words. Dad loses his temper and blows up at them. Now, children will have one of two reactions when you blow up dad. Either they will wilt and it will just crush them, depending on their personality. Or they will seethe with anger. And as they're younger, they may not say anything, but they are boiling. And when they get older, when they get as big as you are, you better watch it. That anger is going to erupt. The fifth way we can exasperate our children is never being satisfied with what they do. They make an A, you say, well, why didn't you make an A+. They come home with a 95 on the test, you say, why didn't you make a 100? They go out to the ball field and they get three hits. They score two runs. They catch two balls. But after the game, the only thing you mention is the one ball they missed. Never compliment them on what they did good. You just center in on the one bad thing they did. Why'd you miss that ball? Why weren't you paying attention? You need to stay down on it. Never satisfy. Never compliment. I've spent a good number of years coaching my sons as we they've been growing up. And on one of the teams we had, we had a guy whose dad was never satisfied with what this guy did. This guy was a decent pitcher. But his dad wanted him to throw every ball to strike. And his dad would get behind the backstop. And when the son wouldn't throw a strike, he'd say, You're not stretching out right. Your delivery's too high. And the boy was, you could tell he was terrified. 
And every time he'd throw a pitch, he'd look over at his dad. We coaches try to figure out some way to get this guy out of here. And I was coaching first base, I remember, and the guy came up to bat, and he hit a little blooper over first base. I mean, it wasn't a good solid hit, but he got on base. And so he came to first base, I said, good hit. He said, my dad won't think so. And what's that take? I won't be a bit surprised if that guy doesn't rebel when he gets older. Never being satisfied. Your children need to know what pleases you. And then when they do that, they need to be complimented. They need to hear words of affirmation from you. Words of encouragement. I mean, you may not produce a superstar, but you'll produce a son who loves you. You know, my tendency, as I have said, was to be this drill sergeant, centering on the one thing they did wrong, because I wanted them to be great. I wanted them to play professional ball, and the only way you do that is you correct every mistake. You take it seriously. You don't allow any mistakes. You've got to be intense. You've got to work at it. And I forget now, but I think it was the movie Pistol Pete Maravich. I don't know if many of you saw that movie, but man, his dad drove him and drove him and drove him and drove him. I mean, he was a slave driver. And you will see that in the lives of many professional athletes. I mean, their parents drove and drove, used their dad, drove and drove and hammered them and hammered them and hammered them. But you know, they don't have, they don't have too good a relationship with dad now. And I decided early on when I saw myself having this tendency, I said, nope. You know, they may never play a single day of college or professional sports, but you know, they're not going to hate me. I'm not going to be one of those dads that drives and drives and drives. Because what have I accomplished if they do play college or pro sports and yet we don't have a relationship? They hate me. They think, man, he was so mean. What if, what's been accomplished? What's really important? Dads don't exasperate them by never being satisfied. Another way you can exasperate them is unkept promises. You promise, oh, we're going fishing this weekend. Weekend comes, the son gets up all excited about going fishing. He comes downstairs. He says, where's dad? Mom says, oh, he's gone off playing golf with his friend. Now, how does that make the son feel? The dad says, this, this weekend, we're going to do something together. The son comes down and says, dad, what are we going to do? He says, oh, I forgot. I need to work today. I've got some work I need to do. Unkept promises will exasperate your child. Now, Paul doesn't get specific when he says don't exasperate your children because there are numerous ways we can do it, dads. You need to be asking yourself, am I exasperating my children? Am I needlessly making them angry? Now, you're going to make them angry sometimes when you lay down rules. That's just part of life. And that's okay. But are you making them needlessly angry? You say, well, you know, I, I'm not really sure. You want me to tell you how you can find out? Ask her mother. She can probably tell you if you're exasperating those kids, if you are being dictatorial and overbearing. So the first thing is don't force feed your children. Rather, nurture and nourish them. The word bring them up in the Greek is the word for nurture. The word for nourish. It's the idea of raising a young plant. 
And those of you who raise plants, you know when you start a plant off, you've got to keep it watered, but not too much water. You've got to make sure it's getting the sun, but not too much sun. You want to make sure the temperature is right. You really have to nurture and nourish that plant as you're starting it off and getting it growing. Well, there are a lot of similarities between that and what it means to nurture and nourish your children. Now, three things are implied. Number one, there's got to be a relationship. You know, scientists have even found out that plants respond to a relationship. That people who talk to their plants, the plants actually do better. Now, if that's true for plants, how much more for your children? If you're going to nurture them, guys, you've got to have a relationship with them. That means you've got to spend time with those kids. Not leaving for work before they get up and coming home from work after they're in the bed. That means spending time with them, not coming home from work and plopping in front of the television set and going into a daze. That means having meaningful conversation with those children. And by meaningful conversation, I do not mean be quiet. Go ask your mother. Turn the channel. Stop fighting, guys. That's not meaningful conversation, Dad. I mean talking to them. There was one father who was approaching the end of his life because he had terminal cancer. And he wrote these words as a father's regret. My family's all grown and the kids are all gone. But if I had to do it all over again, this is what I would do. I would love my wife more in front of my children. I would laugh with my children more at our mistakes and our joys. I would listen more, even to the littlest child. I would be more honest about my own weaknesses, never pretending perfection. I would pray differently for my family. Instead of focusing on them, I would focus on me. I would do more things together with my children. I would encourage them more and bestow more praise. I would pay more attention to little things like deeds and words of thoughtfulness. And then finally, if I had to do it all over again, I would share God more intimately with my family. Every ordinary thing that happened in every ordinary day, I would use to direct them to God. One father's regret. Secondly, to nourish implies not only relationship, but tenderness. That doesn't come natural for some of us men. To be tender. To be kind to your children. Don't worry, you're not going to turn out a bunch of sissies if you're tender and kind with your sons. Be tender with them. Not harsh, not mean-spirited. Consoling words, loving words, soft words are what you need to speak. Sometimes a father doesn't have a relationship with his children, and so he has to rely on mean, harsh words to try to get them to do what he says because there's no relationship there. They will not obey because they love him. So he has to try to put fear into their hearts. Nourish not only implies relationship and tenderness, but it also implies consistency. Another confession. 
I can never grow plants because I'm not consistent in watering and taking care of them. In one church I was in, there was a lady who thought she would add warmth to my office by putting living plants in my office at church. Okay, that's fine. They died. Every one of them died. Because I'd water them one day and then a week later I'd think, hmm, maybe I need to water these things again. I mean, I was inconsistent. As far as turning them toward the sun, putting them in, oh, man, who's got time for that? You know, even artificial plants need care. I found out because then she brought in artificial plants. You got to dust them. But I wouldn't dust them. I look around the plants, you could hardly tell they were green, all the dust on them. You got to be consistent in nurturing your children. That means you consistently spend time with them. You can't go home after this sermon and spend a couple of hours with them today and a couple of hours uh, this week and then stop. You need to consistently build that relationship. You need to consistently speak words of encouragement and tenderness. So the first thing, dads, don't force feed your children. Nurture and nourish them. Number two, fathers, give your children direction and correction in the Lord. In other words, discipline them in the Lord. Verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I cannot overstate how important it is for fathers to be involved in the discipline of the children. Dad, don't leave it to mom. Harvard University sociologists Sheldon and Eleanor Glick developed a test that proved to be 90% accurate that they could put to a five- and six-year-old child to tell if they would become a delinquent. And do you want to know the number one thing that they found that if it was present in the child's life, they would not become a delinquent? The father's firm, fair, and consistent discipline. Number one factor in keeping your child from becoming a delinquent. Number two, the mother's supervision and companionship during the day. Number three, the parents demonstrated affection for each other and for the children. And number four, the family spending time together in activities where all participated. They, you need to be involved in their discipline, in giving them first direction. Well, what direction should I give them? Paul tells us, verse 1. Train them to obey you and their mother. When Paul commands children to obey their parents, a two-year-old child, who is that command really addressed to? It's addressed to the parents. You have to make sure that they obey. And so your first thing is to teach them to obey your voice. Until you teach them to obey you, you really cannot teach them anything else. Back when I was pastoring in my first church, 
I had a friend who pastored in a church just a couple of miles away, and he and his three-year-old son were over our house visiting, and my oldest daughter Tiffany was out, and they were in the yard playing. We had a real busy highway that came by the front yard, and he and I were out talking, supposedly looking after the kids while they were playing. And I looked up just in time to see his son, Todd, running toward the busy road. And so I said, Jackie, look, it's Todd. And he looked up and said, Todd, stop! Boy, that boy froze right before he went into the busy highway. Obedience saved his life. Teaching your children to obey can save their lives. Well, how do you teach them to obey? Well, you tell them to do something, and then when they do not do that, you discipline them. And you will notice you immediately run into their willfulness. Now, usually it starts when they get old enough to reach for stuff. And you say, no. And you kind of pop them on the hand. And then a while later, they crawl back up and they reach for it again. And then they look at you. And then they grab it. Well, you know then. They know it. They know what they're doing. So it may take a pop on the hand. It may take a, a swat on the diapered bottom with a newspaper rolled up. But at those early ages, you teach them when you say something and they don't do it, there is some punishment that comes to bear. Now, I'm one who believes in spanking children when it's done properly. The Scripture teaches in Proverbs 22:15, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child... The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. That foolishness is that rebellion that's in a child's heart. And God only gives one remedy for that, and that's a rod of reproof. Now, the size of the rod varies according to the size of the child. A little bitty switch is sufficient for a young child. Now, they get on up about the age of my sons, you might need to get a hickory switch to put it on them. Maybe a willow branch or something. But the size of the rod varies with the size of the child. But the only way to break that rebellion that God gives is, a, and I believe it needs to be flexible. Some people want to use a spoon. But the problem with a rigid object is there's no give. And when you strike that child, the full impact of that blow goes on that child. And it can damage the tissue underneath the skin. Now, when you have a flexible instrument like a switch... It's a sting, but it's not damaging the underlying tissue. Object is not to bruise them, not to damage them, but to inflict a certain amount of pain that will get their attention and motivate them. Proverbs thirteen twenty four says, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. It was Benjamin Franklin who said... Spare the rod and spoil the child. That's not biblical, but the Bible says if you love them, you will discipline them. My dad used to have a saying, and he raised three preachers. He said, child rearing is simple. Love them and whoop them. And he practiced it too. Susanna Wesley, mother of John and Charles Wesley, who raised 17 children, said this about child raising. The parent who studies to subdue the self-will in his child works together with God 
in the renewing and saving a soul. The parent who indulges it does the devil's work, makes religion impractical, salvation unattainable, and does all that is in him lies to damn his child, soul, and body forever. Now remember, this discipline is done in conjunction with that loving relationship that I mentioned earlier. So the first thing you do is teach them to obey your voice. Second thing, teach them to honor you and their mother. Paul says again in verse 2, honor your father and your mother. Dad, it's your responsibility to teach your children to honor you and their mother. The first thing you have to teach them is to obey your voice, because if they will not obey you, they will not honor you. They will not respect you. Why should they? They don't have to obey you. You don't ever make good on your threats so or what you say you're going to do. Why would they respect you? That's why obedience comes first. But you will not put up with disrespect. You will not put up with disrespectful attitudes or disrespectful words. When they're disrespectful, you call them on the carpet and you deal with that. After all, you are the Father. The third thing you need to do is to give your children instruction. First thing, don't force feed them, nurture them. Second thing, discipline them. Give them correction and direction. Third thing is give them Instruction. As he says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That it's your responsibility to teach your children. Now, men come up with many reasons why mom can do it better. Well, she's more suited. She knows the kids better. She's got the temperament better. She's a better teacher than I am. She just can do it. You know, when you stand before Jesus someday and He says, Why did you not teach your children? Like I commanded you to. Why did you leave it with your wife? What are you going to say? Uh, 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 she was better at it than I was. And he'll simply say, I commanded you to teach your children. We have that responsibility. Well, what do you teach them? Well, first you teach them the truths of God's Word. Paul wrote Timothy about the instruction of God's Word. And he says, and that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Teach them the gospel. Teach them how to pray, how to witness, how to study the Bible, how to resist temptation, how to claim God's promises. Teach them how to be responsible stewards of God's money. Well, there are many things you should teach them. Well, how do you teach them? You start early. You start by reading the Bible to them. Even when they're still in the crib, you go in and read the Scriptures to them. You show to get one of those Bibles and pictures when they get old enough to look at pictures and you talk to them about the Bible stories through the pictures. As they get older, you begin to tell Bible stories to them. Then you act them out as they get older. And as they get older yet, you sit down and you instruct them. But you know what it requires? A relationship. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now notice the... Underlying implication is there's a relationship here between dad and kids. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. 
Now that implies the dad spending time with the kids, doesn't it? And the verse before that says you're to teach them the Word of God, His commandments, as you rise up, as you lie down, as you sit, as you walk. They're with you. They're spending time with you. You're building a relationship. And therefore, you can instruct them in the ways of God. But instruct them also by your example. They need to see you studying your Bible. They need to see you on your knees in prayer. They need to see you witnessing to the Gospel. They need to see you claiming the promises of God. Fathers, God commands us to bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That means loving them. That means disciplining them with correction and direction. That means teaching them with instruction. A man came home from work as usual, late, tired, irritated. His six-year-old son was waiting at the door for him. As soon as he got home, his son said, Dad, can I ask you a question? He said, sure, son. He said, how much money do you make in an hour? Dad got a little irritated and said, that's none of your business. Why do you want to know how much money I make an hour? He said, well, Dad, I just really want to know. Would you please tell me, how much money do you make in an hour? The dad, wanting to be left alone, said, well, if you must know, $20. The son kind of bowed his head inside, and he looked up and said, Dad, can I borrow $10? The dad got irritated and said, you just wanted to know how much I made so you could ask me for $10 to buy some stupid toy that you don't even need. I can't believe that. If you're going to be like that, just go up to your room and go to bed. I work hard all day and long. I don't need to put up with this. So the son quietly went up to his room and closed the door. The dad sat down and he just fumed about it. He couldn't believe his son was asking that kind of question just to get some money out of him. And then after a couple of hours when he cooled down, he started thinking about it and think, well, maybe I was a little harsh and maybe he needs the money for something worthwhile. So he went up to his son's room and he knocked on the door and he said, Son, are you asleep? He said, No, Daddy, I'm awake. So he went in and sat beside on his son's bed and he said, You know, I, I was thinking about our conversation and I might have been a little hard on you and, and I was irritated. I had a hard day at work and I took it out on you. Here's $10. The son looked up and he beamed and he reached under his pillow and pulled out a wad of dollar bills, and his dad, seeing that, started getting mad again, saying, you already had money. Why would you ask me for some? What's going on? And the son counted out the money, and he, and he looked up at his dad, and he said, I didn't have enough before, but now I do. Here's $20. I want to buy an hour of your time. 